Welcome to the Fundamental Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Paul Saladino. This podcast is the result of my relentless search to understand and correct the roots of chronic disease and illness. In this podcast, I will share with you everything I have learned about how to live the most healthy and radical life possible. Thanks for joining me on this journey. What is up, you guys? Happy holidays. Happy New Year. This is a fun episode. So if you like this podcast, please leave me a review on iTunes or whatever medium you choose to listen to it. We are doing awesome. I'm aiming for 500 reviews in the near future. We are getting real close. And that's how we get to share the message with other people. So if you like this podcast, please leave me a review on iTunes. If you appreciate what I do, consider subscribing to my newsletter at carnivoremd.com. If you were on the newsletter this past week that I sent out on Christmas Eve, you know that I just got a t-shirt. I got a t-shirt, you guys. There's a link in that newsletter for Design Tree, and I will be publishing it soon on Instagram and other locales. My book is available for pre-sale. You can go to thecarnivorecodebook.com to check out my book, support me that way. We have a Q&A for all of the pre-order people that is going down on Sunday before this podcast. So if you're listening to this podcast on Tuesday and you missed the Q&A, there's going to be a replay of that on YouTube. Thank you to everyone who supported me there. This week on the podcast, I have Dr. Jamie Seaman. She is a board-certified OBGYN. She knows the nether regions of women, and she knows hormones, both men and women's hormones, and we talked all about it on this podcast. So we talked about Jamie's history, where she's come from, her experience with a ketogenic diet, how it helped her lose weight and maintain good metabolic flexibility, as well as insulin sensitivity. We also talk in detail about her carnivore and vegan blood glucose experiment, and we talk about median amplitude glucose excursion which are postprandial glucose excursions. It's a good one. And then we get deep into hormones. We talk about pitfalls. We talk about how these can be affected by ketogenic and carnivore diets for both men and women. And we drop a lot of knowledge. So I think you guys are really going to dig this one. And I appreciate Jamie coming on. She is an amazing woman and I am happy to feature her for you all. I got back from White Oak Pastures recently, you guys. I went to White Oak Cello, which we organized with the Strong Sisters. It was amazing. This is the farm in Georgia doing regenerative agriculture. Will Harris is amazing. I would encourage you all to check out their website, www.whiteoakpastures.com. I really cannot think of two companies between Ancestral Supplements and White Oak Pastures that I would rather support. And we are so excited that we're going to be doing a White Oak Chella next year in May. It's probably going to be the first weekend in May 2020. Stay tuned for details. But I really encourage you all to explore what they are doing on this farm. I've heard Will talk about the symbiosis and it's just amazing to hear about how grazing animals on the land, rotationally moving the places that they are living and combining different animal species makes them all so much healthier. And you see it when you're there. The grass is so green. These have got to be some of the healthiest animals on the planet. Drinking great water from an aquifer under the land in Georgia. It's a rich, rich place for these animals and they are very well cared for. It's an inspiring place, you guys. I am not going to lie. I love it there. I can't wait to go back. So I hope I'll see you guys at White Oak Cella in 2020. Um, you can use the code CarnivoreMD at their website for online orders to get 10% off your first order or Carnivore15 on the three items that are featured every month on my landing page there, which is info.whiteoakpastures.com front slash CarnivoreMD. We're working on getting a little easier one to remember, but that's what it is for now. This m- month... 
or last few weeks, we've had a big uh, grass steak, which is a three pound grass fed steak, which is amazing. We've had oxtail and skirt steak featured on the website for 15% off with carnivore 15 or carnivore MD for 10% off your first order. It's a great deal. I would encourage you all to um, support this farm because we vote with our dollars and they are doing amazing, amazing work. Sometimes people ask me, can we feed the whole world like this? And I think, you know what? I don't think we have to. I think we just need to start with our family and ourselves and let change start slowly. I don't like to prevent discussions of this kind of thing with these long-term non-scalability arguments because this is clearly the way to go. This is clearly what's best for the environment, animals, and ourselves and our families. And this is the future of agriculture on this planet. I think regenerative agriculture is probably one of the greatest hopes for our planet in so many ways. Anyway, hopefully it doesn't sound like hyperbole. Anyway, I also really appreciate Ancestral Supplements, who sponsors this podcast. You guys know them well. You can find their work at www.ancestralsupplements.com. They make grass-fed, grass-finished, desiccated, which is freeze-dried, encapsulated in gelatin capsules, organ supplements that help us all get more of these nose-to-tail nourishment organs that we need. And they are such cool people. They live in Texas. They are doing awesome stuff. I would encourage you to check out their Instagram, at Ancestral Supplements. They are jumping in cold lakes all the time. They walk the walk. They talk the talk. They are good people who want us all to be healthy, and I love supporting them as well. They have a couple of new products I want to tell you about. The first is the tallow. So a lot of us know that fat is super important and that fat allows us to absorb the fat-soluble nutrients more. And there are so many examples of this throughout history. There's a quote from Cabeza de Vaca from 1537. The Native Americans are the people with the most well-formed bodies we saw and of the greatest vitality and capacity. They hunted older animals because they had built up a thick slab of fat, kidney fat and tallow along the back. And that was prized. That is Cabeza de Vaca's quote. And, you know, the tallow, I think, is a great adjunct for all of us. Um, in terms of the fat, it pairs well with the other organs, like I said, to help us absorb the fat-soluble nutrients in those. So check out the tallow. They actually make it in pills. You can chew it like gum, um, good to give to kids, and also just great for hair, skin, and nails if you are having trouble getting enough fat, which I think a lot of people struggle with. The other product that's really cool is the eye supplement. So check this one out as well. Um, I think this could be very beneficial for our eyes. There are so many parts of the animal that have been treasured And though very few of us are going to eat the eyes of animals, taking a desiccated eye could be very beneficial for our eye in terms of growth factors. We don't even know all of the amazing stuff that is in these organs that our ancestors have treasured that could be helping us lead better lives as humans. So check out ancestralsupplements.com. You can use the code SALADINOMD at their Shopify site for 10% off. They are putting back in what the modern world has left out. You guys, I appreciate them so much. And I appreciate you all onto the podcast. Enjoy this one. Listen afterwards for what is going on with me. And we are live. Dr. Jamie Seaman, thank you for coming on my podcast. It's good to see you again. Hello, Paul Saladino. It's great to be here. I have been hoping to have you back on for some time. We did an episode uh, many months ago on YouTube, but I've never released that episode of my podcast. So if people want to cross-reference that and they want more of the amazingness that Jamie Seaman brings, they can listen to that episode. But I have had lots of requests from both members of my female and male audience to have you on to talk about hormones. So we are going to break that down today. Um, but let's just start with your story because it's an interesting one and it illustrates a lot of what we're going to be talking about here. 
you had quite a striking transformation in your own life in all the aspects of it with dietary change in the past. So tell us your life. Yeah, it's interesting how I ever even came into this space because it really started on a super personal level for me. So I was an athlete my whole life, but I got away with eating pretty poorly because I was super active. And I went on to become a college athlete. I played softball at the University of Nebraska, where I got a nutrition and exercise science degree. And after competing collegiately, I went on to medical school. And when I was in medical school, I had my first pregnancy. And I ended up having three pregnancies within 60 months. So I have three daughters and they're all 23 months apart. And one of the greatest physiologic tests of a woman's life is when she's pregnant. And I failed my glucose testing in my pregnancies. And I just kind of chalked it up to the fact that there's a long family history of diabetes in my family. So I just thought I, I must carry some sort of diabetes gene, right? It's nothing that I'm doing. I just have this, this gene, this magical gene. And um, after my third daughter was born, um, I was also diagnosed with hypothyroidism after my first daughter, and I'd been um, on thyroid medication since the, since the first delivery. And after my third daughter was born, um, I had a major tragedy that kind of happened in my life. And it was one of those times in your life where you just kind of almost realize your sense of mortality. I think as medical providers, we're, you know, like we see death. I mean, I, I bring newborn babies into the world, but we see death way more than, than a lot of our, our friends do, right? Our friends and family. And I think sometimes you almost like become immune to it a little bit. And I had this just sense of mortality. And I, I thought, you know, I just, I've, I've got to figure out my own health. I didn't feel great at the time. So I went and had some labs checked with my doctor and I found out I had prediabetes. And here I am, like, I, I think I was, I don't know what, 31 at the time. And that was a huge slap in the face. Here I am. I have a nutrition degree, an exercise science degree, a medical degree. I'm, I'm a practicing physician and I have prediabetes and hypothyroidism. And so I set out on kind of a journey to figure out my diet and figure out my lifestyle and what things could I do to fix these problems? Because I knew that I had years and years and years ahead of me that I did not want to live this way. So I started with kind of a whole 30 approach and then kind of went into the paleo diet for a while and then eventually settled on the ketogenic diet about three and a half years ago. And I've never looked back. My hemoglobin A1C is now 4.9. I just checked it last month. Uh, my thyroid function is completely normal. I'm off all of my thyroid medication. Um, and then about uh, 18 months, 24 months ago, I finally got back into the gym lifting weights again. And I'm a, I'm a two-time lifter of the year at Nebraska. I've shown people on my lives before these trophies, but for those of you who can't see, <laughs> these I love obnoxious it. trophies that I have. Um, but I vowed never to go back to the weight room after I left college. And here I am, I'm back in the weight room and um, I'm building as much muscle as I can because muscle is the organ of longevity. And I feel amazing. And uh, you know, the physical transformation is one thing, but for me, it's like the way that my mind works. Um, it just, it works so much better. It's more clear. I sleep better. I feel better. I work better. I'm a better mom, a better doctor. I mean, literally just, I, I just changed my diet and all these other areas of my life got better. It's such an interesting story. There are so many pieces of that that I want to highlight for people. The first is that 
originally when you were an athlete, you could have eaten anything you wanted and not noticed that you had an issue. I, I did a podcast with Aaron Alexander yesterday um, for his podcast and my podcast, and he brought up this counter argument that there are a lot of athletes eating junk food diets who are performing at a very high level and said, how can nutrition be the biggest lever in health and disease if people can perform as the best in the world eating McDonald's? And I kind of bristled at that. And I thought that's, that's just so myopic to say that because perhaps there's a short window of time in all of our lives between 18 and 24 when we can eat junk food and still perform at a high level. But that is a very short, small window. And if we look across the spectrum of any athlete's career, nutrition is absolutely going to affect that, whether it's injury prevention, injury recovery, long-term longevity as an athlete, or overall performance. But I think this kind of goes back to the Usain Bolt effect and him saying, hey, I ate chicken McNuggets before winning you know, the Olympics and getting all these gold medals and people saying, see, you can eat junk food and it doesn't matter. But I think most listeners will know that that's kind of a farce. And to say that, it misses a lot of points. But the, the young people are probably not people who are ever going to get on to really buy into nutrition because they don't feel a difference. It's once people crest 26, 27, whoever knows, you know, what age they're, they're going to actually have a decline in their, their quality of life with that the things start to really, the wheels come off and things change. And then I'm also curious what you were eating um, when you became insulin resistant, because there's a lot of pushback toward ketogenic diets these days. I was just looking at Lane Norton's Instagram last night and Spencer Nadolsky's Instagram. And I saw you were commenting on Spencer's Instagram as well. And I'm just kind of like, I don't understand why these guys hate on keto. I think I'll just say it blatantly. Lane is a bully and I've debated him openly and I will debate him again. I probably will have to debate him again. I don't know why Lane wants to bully everyone, including ketogenic people. But on his Instagram, he was calling out Mark Hyman, Jason Fung, and others saying that they were charlatans for carb fear mongering. And I thought, what, Lane, I don't understand this. I don't think that, that carbohydrates are bad for everyone, but there clearly are some people who just don't respond well to carbohydrates. So let's just unpack this a little bit yeah. so everyone so can know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. I mean, I agree. I, um, and I did, I comment on some of them. I'm actually, I keep my mouth shut half the time because it's usually not helpful, but here's the issue that some of these, you know, these people that are just like, it's just calories, right? Just maintain your calories. You'll, you'll maintain your weight. You can fix everything if you create a calorie deficit. Well, here's the problem with that is you can create a calorie deficit on a celery juice cleanse, but that doesn't help my 57 year old menopausal woman that's 150 pounds overweight that has insulin resistance and hypothyroidism and all these other problems. Like it's such a myopic lens of like, just control your calories. And that's what we've been doing as doctors for a long time is just telling people eat less, move more. Right. And even if we break it down, let's put two diets side by side, right? Ketogenic diet and standard American diet. And they're both 1500 calories they have different glycemic variability. They have different biomarkers, hormone effects. They're not the same. I mean, they're just not, you cannot put them side by side and say they're the same thing when it comes to an individual's health and the way that their body will respond to that. And yes, are there people out there who are carb sensitive? And, and heck yeah, I used to be an athlete. I used to eat a ton of carbs. I was joking with my husband the other day. I used to eat like a 
foot long sandwich from Subway with chips and two cookies and like a regular soda. I mean, I used to eat a boatload of carbs and I got away with it for a long time. But for the vast majority of America, 88%, there was a study that came out, 88% of America does not have normal metabolic markers. So you know what I want to say to these people? Listen, you can eat whatever diet you want. Show me your metabolic markers. Tell me you feel like a unicorn. And that's cool. That's your diet. That's the diet you need to eat. But if you don't have absolutely normal metabolic markers and feel great and look great, and then it's not the diet for you. And when I debated Lane Norton on Mark Bell's Power Project last February of 2019, I, I want to do it again soon. I asked him, what's your fasting insulin? And he said, oh, it was in the middle of the range. He had no idea. And of course, as you and I both know, the middle of the range for a fasting insulin is a, a very broad term. And yeah, it would be- my, lab, my lab goes up to um, 24, I think. So I right. mean, yeah, I could have a fasting insulin of 18 or something. And a fasting insulin of, of above five is probably abnormal for most people. So for Lane to have said the middle of the range for my fasting insulin was just, I should have pushed him on that much more. But it just gets, it just kind of irks me because I agree with you completely. It, the quality of the food we eat affects how we are as humans in a nuanced way. And I love that you brought up median amplitude glucose excursions or postprandial glucose excursions. And we can get into your, um, we can get into some of your data with a, um, with a carnivore diet and a vegan diet in a moment. So when we're talking about this, what we're really trying to illustrate for people is that if you choose to lose weight on a calorie restricted diet, as you said, you can do it with Twinkies, you can do it with celery, you can do it with anything, but that is absolutely going to affect the overall rhythm of the blood sugar and the micronutrient sufficiency of your diet. And I don't understand how Lane can be so smart and miss this so obvious point. Um, and I don't understand why he knocks keto. I think he just wants to to knock other people to make himself feel better. He's all about cutting other people's heads off to make himself feel taller. But as Lane has said that, or claimed that the, the benefits of a diet are based exclusively on weight loss or caloric deficit. And though he's right in some sense, he's not entirely right. You can see improvements in insulin sensitivity with a Twinkie diet that's calorie restricted. And we could even be in ketosis with a diet that was entirely made of Twinkies if it was calorie restricted. So we can get improvements in physiology with a calorie restricted diet. But what we're not going to get is stable blood sugars. And we know that these median amplitude glucose excursions postprandially, meaning how high the blood sugar ramps up after you eat, can affect the endothelium and many other vascular markers in a negative way. And long-term nutrient adequacy is not going to be able to be achieved by a Twinkie diet. So as we're pausing in your story, let, walk us a little bit through your carnivore and vegan experiment because you wore a continuous glucose monitor and it illustrated this very well. Yeah. So let me back up about a year ago is when I started eating more carnivore based and I leaned out a lot more. <laughs> um, but I didn't feel like once I was about 21 days into strict carnivore, it mentally, it became very difficult for me. And I think that the vast majority of the people listening, I mean, you obviously, obviously have a lot of carnivore followers, but the vast majority of people are going to end up being omnivores, right? And I, I prefer to call it carnivore-ish. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I'm carnivore-ish. I know you are. So then, so then fast forward, you know, like over the next year and I'm eating carnivore-ish and I feel great. Um, but I thought, 
I really wonder what's happening with my blood sugars because all I was trending was my hemoglobin A1C, which is basically a three month average of what's happening with your blood sugars. And when I did strict carnivore, my A1C bumped like 0.2, like it went from 4.9 to 5.1. And I think it was just the increase in the protein. So, and we know that people that are more carnivore, sometimes will see a slight elevation in, in fasting glucose. I've seen that. Um, but I got this continuous glucose monitor. And of course, when I first got it, it was like a kid on Christmas morning that just wants to play with it. Right. So I'm like, what things can I try? So I started trying all these keto products that all my patients and clients are asking me about, right? Okay. Let's see how legit these things are. And some of them were great. And some of them were not great. Some of them really got exposed. And then I thought, okay, let's see what happens when I eat carnivore. And the days when I eat carnivore, my blood sugar was so incredibly stable. I mean, I'm talking like when you looked at it on um, the graph, like there was no ups and downs. It was just kind of this like smooth ocean, you know, it was just like this kind of like slow undulating like number throughout the day. And when my blood sugar looks like that, I feel amazing. I started one of the biggest takeaways from my continuous glucose monitor experiment was correlating what was happening with my blood sugars and how I was feeling in those moments as it was going up and as it was coming down. So then what I did is I ate ketogenic and, and, um, and I, you know, it was interesting to kind of look at like how many carbs with each meal and how high would it go. And, and then I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to eat ketogenic for three days. I'm going to eat carnivore for three days. And then I'm going to eat a whole food vegan diet for three days. And I wasn't trying to make anybody who eats a vegan diet angry, but what I was trying to prove is even if you're eating real whole foods, steel cut oats, for instance, they all have a different glycemic variability and it depends on your body, how insulin sensitive or insulin resistant you are. Now, of course I have fixed my insulin resistant, right? I would consider myself to be pretty insulin sensitive, except for the fact that I eat ketogenic. So my pancreas is not primed for like boatloads of carbs. So, um, I did this experiment and on my whole food vegan diet, the glycemic variability was like all over the place. I'm talking like I ate a bowl of oats and it went up like over 60 points and then it came crashing back down. And on the day that I had the oats, I didn't eat for about another three hours. I was working clinic at the time and my blood sugar like would not stabilize. It was like up, down, up, down. I'm talking like hours after I ate it. Your blood sugar should normalize within like two hours of eating something. It shouldn't take four hours for your body to figure it out. And, and during these ups and downs, there's these counter-regulatory hormones that your body is secreting as the blood sugar is crashing back down. And it was making me anxious. It was, I mean, I was just having all of these symptoms. I developed the first day of the vegan one, I developed a pretty bad headache. Um, the second and the third day, my body, the body's amazing, right? It was trying to adapt. It was trying to figure out how to deal with this, with this new carb load. But I put the graphs side by side and it's pretty eye-opening just to look at them side by side to really get a visual. And I know it's taught a lot of people. I've gotten so many messages and emails from people that said, I was at a restaurant and as I was looking at the menu, deciding what to order, I was picturing your blood sugar graphs. (laughs) I mean, it's such an amazing visual to look at, to kind of think about, okay, what's going to happen in my body after I eat this? And, um, if I'm like I said, if somebody can eat vegan and keep their blood sugars normal, good for you. But I tried it and my blood sugars were all over the place. It was also really difficult for me to figure out how to get protein. 
And I'm in a place in my life where I'm trying to build lean body mass. And um, I just, I don't think I could ever accomplish that, even if it was vegan ketogenic. Yeah, yeah. That's such a great illustration. I, I think that we all thank you for your valiant efforts and your willingness to be, to be so courageous to eat a vegan diet for three days. On the third day of the vegan diet, was it any more stable or was it basically just oscillatory for all three days? Because some people might suggest that it would have evened out over time. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I'm not saying that three days is like enough time to really see. I mean, you know, who knows if I would have done it 10, 14 days, I think my body probably would have continued to adapt. My pancreas would have been, you know, upregulating insulin production and things like that. Um, but no, even on the third day, when you look at the graph side by side, I think actually it was on the third day that I ate two apples, like just plain apples. Like there was no, no peanut butter or protein or anything with them. And I had a huge spike and, um, I was walking into a delivery, actually a forcep delivery. So it was a little bit stressful too. So I think there was some cortisol response in there, but it shot like way up just eating two apples. I mean, it was, it was nuts. And that was by the third day. So uh, it'd be interesting to do it for longer, but I, <laughs> I'm not taking one for the team. <laughs> I know it's, it's, I don't think I, I wouldn't want to either. I was glad that you did it better. You than me, better you than me. And I talk about this in my book. I've talked about this with Tommy Wood, but what we're talking about here are postprandial elevations in blood glucose. And what you were saying was there was a 60 milligram per deciliter bump with many foods. You know, I was talking to Tommy about this. I don't think anybody knows what a quote unquote healthy postprandial bump in blood sugar is, but what he and I decided is what's generally accepted, and I'll be curious to get your take on this, is about 30 milligrams per deciliter after, after eating is really all your blood sugar should bump with foods, and it should return to baseline within two hours. And I've seen lots of people who are eating carnivore and then add back in fruit or, or are even just eating a mixed diet have postprandial elevations. These are the median amplitude glucose excursions that we're talking about. Those are synonymous. Um, go above 60 milligrams per deciliter up from baseline or even more and stay elevated for three hours, four hours. From what we have seen with endothelial function, that type of a postprandial elevation of glucose is probably impairing endothelial function. It's probably causing the glycocalyx on the inside of our blood vessels to misfunction. And it's probably not a very healthy thing for us to have happening. Yeah, no, I completely agree. So like when we treat pregnant patients, for instance, the blood sugar parameters that we give them is a fasting blood sugar less than 95, a one hour postprandial less than 140, which that right there would be a 45 point excursion if they went from a fasting of 95, not assuming their fasting was 95, their fasting might be 80. Right. <laughs> and then a two hour less than 120. And, and that still at two hours would not be bringing your blood sugars back down to normal. So even the parameters that we give pregnant patients, I think are very liberal. Um, and probably, probably too liberal. I think that the, the window of protection of the cardiovascular and the glycocalyx is probably a smaller window. And honestly, if I just went by how I feel, I would say keeping my blood sugar excursions like less than 20 is when I probably feel the best and don't have physical manifestations of the, of the glycemic variability. Yeah. So this is a super important point that Lane is completely missing. What I want is Lane Norton to wear a CGM. Right? I mean, these guys need to put their money where their mouth is. I want Spencer Nadolsky and Lane Norton to wear a CGM and let's look at their blood sugars all day and show me what happens when you are eating your mixed diet and we'll compare it and then we can 
that'll be our best proxy for your glycocalyx and your endothelium and all this other stuff. But well, and I mean, like Spencer and Lane, they also work out a lot. I mean, pretty intensely, right? Much different than my patients. I mean, it's not like we're not comparing apples to apples. Like there are people that need low carb and ketogenic diets. There are. Yeah. Yeah. And so I just want to uh, unpack this one more thing and then we can move on to a, a deep dive into hormones. When you were insulin resistant, you were eating a lot of carbs. Were you eating still, when you were doing medical school in your residency and practicing as a physician, were you eating junk food carbs or were you eating whole foods carbs at that point? Uh, mostly junk food. <laughs> well, no. So part like, yeah, no, I was eating like pretzels and oatmeal and, um, cereal. Yeah. Junk food carbs for sure. But then even when I transitioned, when I thought, okay, I'm going to make myself healthier. And I did whole 30 and paleo, you know, I was eating more squash and sweet potatoes and like whole food carbs, but I feel better ketogenic than I do when I was eating whole 30 or paleo. So, and like I said, I, I've, I've become so in tune with this whole glycemic variability thing that I think that's just how I feel best is with very minimal glycemic variability. Um, Mm. I've started to add back in because I'm carnivore ish. (laughs) I started to add back in some whole food carbs just to kind of see like what happens with my body. And I do just fine with them now. So it may have just been that I was much more insulin resistant back then, but even, even with whole food carbs, I didn't feel like I do now. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And what I've noticed when I've done carb reintroduction experiments is that my athletic performance doesn't change doesn't get better. I did a whole podcast. I did two podcasts with Chris Master John talking about this. I really think that with car- diets that don't have any carbs, as long as we're eating enough protein, we can fill our glycogen stores. Um, and I had a whole conversation with Stan Efforting where I advanced my theory that we could see a, a carnivore strongman because of that. But when I've added back in carbs, the only effect that I feel is a change in my mental clarity. It, it becomes less good. And I think, why would I do this? Like, there's no benefits. I mean, we are not going to go into fiber today, but Lane and I debated fiber at length. And so I don't think many people listening to this podcast will believe that the fiber in, in a whole food carbohydrate is beneficial. And so if our glycogen stores are full, in my experience, it's just changing the mental clarity that I'm getting from a ketogenic diet. I should say a low level ketogenic diet because I'm eating a lot of protein. There's no carbohydrates in it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So interesting stuff. And I do wonder if there are some people who can thrive on fully carbohydrate-based diets. I think there probably are. And um, I have been very clear in the past that I don't think carbs are bad for humans. But what we're kind of driving at here is the notion that perhaps some people need a period without them to reset things. And the removal of carbohydrates certainly can be a very viable strategy for reversing insulin resistance or other issues. And some people, I think, may be so sensitive to carbohydrates, they just can't have them in their diet and have any significant degree of insulin sensitivity. Who knows? Yeah, I think the idea of metabolic flexibility uh, is super important. The ability to have a dual fuel source. Um, And I completely agree with you. I mean, I think people should go in and out of it and try it and adapt your body. So it takes, I mean, we know it takes weeks to upregulate the MCT transporters of the mitochondrial membrane and, you know, downregulate your glute transporters. And um, I think it's good to, uh, to challenge your body sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do think a lot of women, especially maybe feel that they are limited with a full carnivore diet. And I think people may like a carnivore ish diet where they can include avocado or mm-hmm. a few things from time to time for variety. Um, but 
that's an interesting piece as well that you've experienced. And I know you've done, like you said, full carnivore from time to time, but mostly you're eating. Well, what are you eating these days? (laughs) So I still eat a lot Mm. of meat, you know? So, um, like last night for dinner, I had a steak, uh, with four shrimp and some mushrooms. So I love mushrooms. (laughs) I remember when uh, you almost knocked a mushroom out of my hand at keto. I did. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, a fungus is not a plant, right? It's its own, (laughs) it's its own category. I love mushrooms, but, um, I mean, I'll have some veggies, but they're just not the main like part of my dish. Like basically I'm eating two meals a day. Occasionally I'll do three because I'm in a phase where I'm just really trying to put on a ton of muscle and my hunger, I work out at 5am. And so sometimes my hunger after the gym is there. And if it is, I eat probably about five eggs. Um, but I'm eating a lot of steak. Um, I eat some chicken, salmon, shrimp, and then just like occasional veggies. I do like avocado. I might have some random nuts and seeds, but I mean, I'm, I'm definitely carnivore ish. (laughs) It sounds like the majority of your diet is nutrient rich animal foods. Yeah. 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 No, it does. It does. That's interesting. Okay, cool. But I have the social flexibility to, to just be ketogenic. And I think that's important. Mm -hmm. Um, I think sometimes you know, we get into this like dogma of like the keto police and things like that. And, you know, I, I have three kids and a life and I just figure out how to sustain. Yeah. And I don't even think it even always has to be ketogenic or low carb. I, but like we're saying, I think there's a real value for that. And detractors need to take a backseat or show up for debates. So, but let's jump into hormones because this is really, I think an interesting conversation in the context of ketogenic diets, if we are going to accept the value of removing the majority of our carbohydrates, people get worried about, is it going to affect my thyroid? Is it going to affect my estrogen? And certainly from time to time, I have heard women on carnivore diets um, say that their cycle length changes, it lengthens, it shortens. And so it's interesting to think about what's going on here. And um, I can think of one particular case that we can probably go into on the podcast um, of, of Cassie, who I'm sure would be fine with us talking about her, her case. Um, but uh, yeah, let's dig into this a little bit. Let's set the stage for us in terms of the overall hormonal balance and how this all works in the human body. Yeah. So first of all, we just need to acknowledge that women are complex biological creatures. So it's not just diet. Everyone messages me all the time tell me how to eat to balance my hormones. It's not just diet. Um, There are a lot of other things at play here. And those include exercise, the way you sleep, the way you methylate, the way you, you know, what things are you exposed to in your environment? So it's not just simply your diet, but your diet does play, you know, a role in hormone production and balance and things like that. So let's talk about just like normal female hormone physiology So women basically are in like one of four stages in the hormonal process per se. So little girls, right, are born. And when little girls are born, I have three daughters, they have about one to two million eggs in their ovaries. And by the time they enter puberty, there's about 400,000 eggs left in their ovaries. So women actually only ovulate about 1% of the eggs that they're born with. And then after they go through puberty, they enter these years of fertility, And in the years of fertility, um, we basically, uh, you know, if we look at a normal menstrual cycle length, which you brought, which you brought up, you know, let's say an average is, is 28 days, which is true for most women. What we see in different phases of this cycle are, are changes in these hormonal levels. So in the 
first half of that menstrual cycle, which we'll call follicular phase, we see a decline in estrogen. And this stimulates something called FSH or follicle stimulating hormone to be secreted from the pituitary gland in the brain. And the FSH stimulates the follicles in the ovary. So we said you were born with, you know, all these eggs. So it's stimulating all those little follicles to grow. These growing follicles are what stimulate more estrogen secretion. Estrogen starts to thin the cervical mucus. It opens up the cervix and it's telling your brain to pick one of these follicles to release an egg from. So then halfway through the cycle is when ovulation occurs. We see this huge estrogen surge, which causes luteinizing hormone to surge. And luteinizing hormone is LH, and that's another hormone that's secreted from the pituitary gland. This LH surge um, causes an egg to be released, and now you have entered luteal phase. So luteal phase is the second half of the menstrual cycle. And where that little egg was released from turns into something called a corpus luteum, and it secretes progesterone. So basically, the first half of the phase is very estrogen dominant, and the second half of the the phase is very progesterone dominant. So we see a slight increase in basal body temperature, um, and that lasts about 12 to 16 days. And then if there's no fertilization of the um, egg and implantation, then estrogen and progesterone will both fall and the cycle starts back over. So women go through basically two weeks of follicular, two weeks of luteal, just back and forth and back and forth. And they should be having a very regular cycle during all of these years of fertility. And it won't be perfect, right? Some months it might be 28, some months it's 29, but it shouldn't be fluctuating large amounts. Um, If you start to see that the cycle is really shortening, which I've seen as some women start to really lean out their bodies, the the cycle becomes shorter. They start having even 23, 24, 25, 26 day cycles. Um, And then sometimes women will have, will have longer cycles. It's normal to even have women that have up to like a 32 to 34 day cycle. But what's interesting when we talk about dietary influence during the menstrual cycle is depending on which phase of the cycle you're in also changes your insulin sensitivity, the way you utilize fat, the way you store fat, the way you know your muscles can grow if you're retaining water. So when you're in this follicular phase, right, which is the first half of the menstrual cycle, um, estrogen is the dominant hormone. You actually have a little bit higher insulin sensitivity when you are in the follicular phase. And I have become so in tune with this when I'm in my follicular phase, my estrogen phase. Um, I can eat more carbs. I'm working out hard in the gym. I recover better at the gym. So at rest in the follicular phase, you're using glucose as your predominant fuel source. But when you're exercising, you're using fat when you're in the follicular phase. Um, Your fat storage is lowered during this stage. Your metabolic rate stays about the same. You have lower hunger. I definitely have less cravings um, in the first half of my cycle. Um, you have less water retention. So a lot of women will notice like kind of like a bloated feeling or like they don't have much muscle definition and that's lower during this phase. And this is a great time to help grow your muscles for women. So if you are in the first half of your cycle, get to the gym and get working hard. And then after ovulation happens, you enter the luteal phase, right? Which is the high hormone here is progesterone. Now our insulin sensitivity is going way down. So women are less sensitive to insulin when they're in progesterone phase, um, but they're using more fat as a fuel source. Um, There is a slight increase in metabolic rate, maybe even 150, 200 extra calories per day in metabolic rate when you're in luteal phase. 
but your hunger is much higher because of this increase in metabolism. And this is where women get the cravings, right? The week before their menstrual cycle is about to start, they just feel like they want to eat everything in their kitchen. And that is due to um, the hormonal fluctuations. The blood sugars also become much less stable. Um, I did not cycle track my CGM, but that's my next thing that I want to do. That's what I was going to ask you. Yeah. I'm going to put each day of my menstrual cycle. One, my cycle is basically about 29 days right now. Um, which is interesting because when I was stricter carnivore, it was about 26, 27 and now being carnivore ish, it's about 28, 29. Um, but (laughs) I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this and show you guys what happens with your blood sugars. Um, but the water retention right before the menstrual cycle starts, um, goes up, um, and, and it's harder to grow muscle in this, this stage. So women who are listening every single day of that menstrual cycle is a different hormonal profile. There are a lot of crazy things happening inside your body. Um, and you just need to put the right fuels in and take care of your body the right way. And it will sort itself out. Um, but if you are confused as to what could be going on, you can do cycle mapping where we look at hormone levels on each day of your cycle. We can do that with testing, um, urinary metabolites. Um, we can also test serum levels. So I like to test women's hormones at certain days of their menstrual cycle to see what's going on. Um, but you don't really know what's going on unless you, unless you test. And then, um, as women leave this fertility stage, they go into something called perimenopause, Um, which I also like to call reverse puberty. And this is a horrible time in women's lives. (laughs) Um, Perimenopause is basically when we start to see a reduction in hormone production from the ovaries. And women can experience all sorts of of different uh, symptoms during perimenopause. And then eventually their their ovaries will stop working and they'll go through, through menopause. And this can happen even five to 10 years prior to menopause, usually it's, usually it's less than five years. But what's happening is those little follicles, remember we said you're only born with a certain number of follicles, those number of follicles in the ovaries start to really diminish. And once you basically get down to the bottom of the jar and there's no more follicles to be stimulated is when you'll finally go through menopause. So what's happening during this um, phase is the hormones are becoming very erratic. Um, estrogen, literally, if you look at it, um, if you've ever tracked a perimenopausal woman, the estrogen, one month I'll check her and she's like 278. And I'm like, oh, you're estrogen dominant. And then the next month I check her and her estrogen's like two. <laughs> then the next month I check her and she's back up to 150. The estrogen levels are all over the place in perimenopause. Um, and then once you get to late phase perimenopause, basically estrogen and progesterone both basically go to zero. And what happens in women when this happens is we see this increase in visceral fat deposition. Um, there's a clear connection between falling estradiol levels and insulin sensitivity, which is where I also like to bring up points for, um, other doctors in the community that at some point in your life, (laughs) insulin resistance is going to catch up to you. And for most of my patients, it's perimenopause and menopause. They also start to lose their lean body mass. They become less efficient at digestion of protein. Um, as their gastric pH starts to rise, um, their metabolic rate, um, and thyroid functions start to decrease and, and the more fat and less muscle increases their risk of, of lots of diseases, cardiovascular disease, sarcopenic obesity, um, all sorts of things. And so then 
they finally go through menopause. And in the United States, the average age of menopause is between 51 and 52. And the clinical definition is when you haven't had a period for 12 months. Now, I have had a handful of patients who thought they were menopausal and they started a ketogenic diet and they started having intermittent ovulation. <laughs> so please I've be careful. Of I, saw, yeah. Yeah, I saw a 47-year-old get pregnant this year. <laughs> um, so just know that until you know your ovaries are done, they might not be done. <laughs> and isn't it interesting, I'll just pause you there for a moment. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Isn't it interesting that a diet that many people would say is negative for the hormones can improve or cause um, people to cycle again suddenly, presumably because they had some degree of insulin resistance that was then improved when they went ketogenic. So I just think that's an interesting illustration. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So that is actually a perfect segue to kind of talk about basically, let's go back to the fertile years, which is like a lot of the women that are probably listening. And let's talk about some of the problems that we actually see and how the ketogenic diet fixes those things. So let's go back to estrogen because estrogen is the dominant hormone in women. So we actually make um, three different types of estrogen. So um, estradiol is, is known as E2 in the body. That's the main estrogen um, that most women make. And then the second one is called estrone, which is E1. And then the third estrogen is called estriol, and that's an estrogen that um, typically we just make during pregnancy. So estrogen, dominant hormone in women, but men also do have estrogen. And most of the estrogen in men is from the aromatization of their androgens, their testosterone into estrogen. So um, if you have a man that's obese um, and he aromatizes a lot of his testosterone into estrogen because our fat cells increase aromatase activity, that's where men can get gynecomastia and breast development. So um, men do have estrogen too. Um, but estrogen is, is the, uh, involved in the primary sexual development of women. So as girls are going through puberty, estrogen is what helps with breast development. And it also changes the way that we have um, body fat deposition. So women tend to carry a lot of their body fat on their lower half. So this lower body fat patterning is um, from estrogen. Um, but there's estrogen receptors all over our bodies. So they're in our brains, they're in our bones, they're in our hearts. They're doing all sorts of, of other things besides just our, um, our sex organs. And so most of our estrogen is made in our ovaries. Um, and, um, and then we have a small amount that's made in our fat, our liver, and our neural tissue. So it's actually crazy. Our brain actually makes estrogen and progesterone both. And it synthesizes its own cholesterol to do that, which is super cool. The brain is awesome. And the brain loves, loves estrogen. Um, there is a significant increase in cognitive decline as women go through menopause. And um, it's due to the falling estrogen levels and the increase in insulin resistance, <laughs> which is where the ketogenic diet can be a, a major player for these women. Um, we have a couple different estrogen receptors in our body, estrogen receptor, receptor alpha and beta, and they're found in different organs. We won't go into all of that, but just know that there's different receptors in different parts of our body and they stimulate different things. Um, but the reason that I want to talk about estrogens is something that I see clinically is something called estrogen dominance. So when women go through these years of fertility, right, we kind of said two weeks estrogen, two weeks progesterone. 
the only way to get that good progesterone production is to basically have a good ovulation. So there's small amounts of progesterone made in our adrenal glands, but most of the progesterone made in women is from an ovulatory ovary. So if you are not having a normal menstrual cycle and ovulating and making, not just ovulating, but making good progesterone from the corpus luteum, you could be experiencing estrogen dominance. And estrogen dominance um, could be people with polycystic ovarian syndrome. It could be people who are just obese. Um, it could be people that use too much alcohol, um, people that just have any sort of inflammation, autoimmune disorders, people that have a lot of xenoestrogen exposure. So plastics, phthalates, um, chemicals, the nail polish you're using, the makeup you're putting on your body, a lot of these are endocrine disruptors and a lot of them act as xenoestrogens, meaning they stimulate estrogen receptors in the body, even though they're not estrogen themselves. Um, and then insulin resistance, basically anybody with insulin resistance tends to be estrogen dominant. Um, but this is not just for women. So men too can be estrogen dominant. Um, and it can be for a lot of the same reasons, insulin resistance, xenoestrogen exposure, alcohol use and obesity, um, are the big ones. And the thing to talk about with men, I'm a women's health specialist, and I know you've had people on to talk about testosterone and things like that. But in my community, we see a huge problem with low testosterone in men, high estrogen levels, low testosterone, erectile dysfunction, and a lot of it can be fixed with diet. We, we have like testosterone replacement clinics on every corner, I think, in my town. And um, it can be a major problem because if you go on TRT, um, you're not you're not teaching your body how to make its own and it can. So, um, and okay. It's not, and it's not correcting the root cause if the root cause is insulin resistance, right? So many guys get put on TRT because they're insulin resistant or inflamed or, I mean, there's a lot of parallels in what you're saying. I mean, the women's hormones and the, men, and the men's hormones are more parallel than many people believe. And maybe once we talk about the women's hormones, we can bring it back to men's hormones a little bit. But I think a lot of these same imbalances, as you're suggesting, can happen in men and they're correctable in a lot of the same ways. And just like, it's really uh, a disservice to women to just put them on birth control pills or supplemental hormones to fake a period or to fake hormonal uh, fluctuations when they're insulin resistant. It's, it's, it, people are doing the same thing with men with TRT. We're just giving them testosterone many times when there is a correctable cause of that in, in their lifestyle. And that's not being addressed because we're using the shortcut. Yes, 100%. So a really good point that you brought up is that a lot of times when women have irregular menstrual cycles, um, heavy menstrual bleeding, these signs of estrogen dominance, a lot of times they're just given an oral contraceptive pill, even if they're not using it for birth control. Um, I like to say birth control is for birth control. Okay, birth control has its place. If you, Every woman has a right to decide when she wants pregnancy and when she doesn't. But people need to understand that birth control comes with side effects. Um, we're, I, I don't necessarily need to go into super detail, or we can, we can dive into it, but oral contraceptives deplete the body of B vitamins, zinc, selenium, magnesium. They can cause hypothyroidism, they can contribute to insulin resistance, and they can cover up the, the root cause of just exactly what you're talking about, insulin resistance. And... Um, most women and most OBGYNs do not even understand the drug nutrient interactions that oral contraceptives um, have. It's a huge deal. It's a huge deal. And then they come off of them and they can't get pregnant and they get down the rabbit hole of infertility. And then they're in the REI office and just told their only options IVF. 
um, when they could fix a lot of this with their diet, a lot of it. Um, okay. So if you have estrogen dominance, the question is, do you have too much estrogen or do you have not enough progesterone? Cause it could be both of those things. But the thing that you need to understand about estrogen in a woman's body and a man's body for that matter is that estrogen is a use it and lose it hormone. That's how I like to describe it. So estrogen does amazing things, but estrogen is not good if it just continues to hang around. So you want to invite estrogen to the party. And then when the party's over, estrogen needs to go home. Okay. In an Uber, <laughs> in your urine or in your feces. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the, so the major hormone estradiol, right, which we said was E2, it can actually get converted back and forth between E1 and E2. So estrone and estradiol can make each other. And if you have a lot of um, E1, estrone, it increases your risk of estrogen dominant cancers. And so, and it can cause symptoms for people like breast tenderness, heavy periods, headaches for men, gynecomastia and erectile dysfunction. So the way that you metabolize estrogen in your body um, is super, super important. And estrogen goes through basically three phases in the body. Phase one is in the liver. And this is where estrogen basically gets broken down into its metabolites. And we'll just call them 2OH, 4OH and 16OH. And the 2-OH metabolite is basically the safest metabolite of estrogen. And there are certain things, about 70% of our estrogen should be getting pushed down this pathway. And there are things from a dietary perspective that help push it down this pathway. And um, this is where you hear, I know you have brought up Rhonda Patrick and her broccoli sprouts <laughs> and her DIM and her sulforaphane. Um, but this is something that does upregulate this um, CYP1A1, which pushes it down the 2OH pathway. And then the other two pathways, the 4OH pathway, about 10% of our estrogen is metabolized on this pathway, but this pathway can damage our DNA and it can be more cancer inducing. Um, and then the 16OH pathway can be proliferative. So when we think about estrogen dominance and something that's proliferative, we think about like fibroadenomas of the breast fibroid tumors of the uterus, uterine polyps, right? So these are growths that are not necessarily cancerous, but the cells are growing or proliferating. So then after the estrogen goes through these three phases, or goes through this first phase into these three metabolites, then it has to get methylated. And um, for people that don't know what methylation is, it's basically... Um, well, here, Paul, you give a good explanation of methylation. <laughs> we need methyl donors. So our methyl donors are basically B vitamins, um, choline, folate, methionine, SAMe. And then there are two SNPs or genes that are major players in this, the MTHFR gene and the COMT um, gene, um, which I'm a homozygote for MTHFR. So if you have any of these SNPs, you could be a poor methylator to begin with. Um, and so if this pathway doesn't work, then that's what would increase your risk of estrogen dominance and estrogenic cancers. Um, do you have anything to add about methylation? I'll just say that I think of methylation as the movement of methyl groups around the body. It's a methyl group is a CH4 and, um, the, there are CME is the major methyl donor in the human body. It, it, it's involved in over 300 reactions and it, the addition and subtraction of methyl groups from molecules in our body is the methylation cycle. What I will add is that if people are curious about methylation, they should listen to the conversation I had with Ben Lynch on this podcast, yeah. a pretty well-known naturopathic guy who's 
uh, very well versed in methylation. And the take home with regard to at least MTHFR is that in my view, if we are getting enough riboflavin, which is a uh, vitamin B2, which is really only present in significant quantities in animal foods, we really will never see enough riboflavin in plant foods, period. If we are getting enough riboflavin, even you and I, Jamie, who both are homozygous for MTHFR polymorphisms can have an MTHFR enzyme that functions normally with a robust amount of riboflavin on the order of two to three milligrams per day, which is the amount in about three ounces of liver or kidney. Um, there's a small amount of riboflavin in muscle meat as well, but we really need to include organ meats if we want MTHFR to work. And so the problem with methylation that people will run into is if, if your MTHFR doesn't work or you don't have enough riboflavin or you don't have enough folate or you don't have enough B6 or B12 or glycine, um, all of which we will get in spades if we're eating a good amount of animal foods in our diet, including organs, that MTHFR won't make L-methylfolate. And L-methylfolate is this kind of stopgap. It's necessary to, to move homocysteine to methionine and the cycle doesn't work. We won't make enough methionine. We won't make enough CME if our MTHFR doesn't work. But the takeaway is we can make it all work really well. And I, I often just kind of allay my clients' fears and say, hey, look, if you get enough of these nutrients, you'll be fine. It's not as big a deal as people make it out to be. But yes, these, these polymorphisms can affect the way that we are moving these methyl groups around the body in, um, in negative ways if we are not nutrient replete. Um, and then COMT is a little different. COMT, as you know, is the one that is going to uh, methylate the catecholamines and estrogen to detoxify it. So if we have a slow COMT and we're not methylating the estrogen to get rid of it, then that's a whole separate story. And we can think about the things which slow down COMT, most of which are plant compounds. So that's a whole other separate issue that we can, if we get a lot of flavonoids, we'll slow COMT, wouldn't want to do that. Can I just back up for one second and ask you a question about the phase one stuff? Because you mentioned DIM and those other things. And I've heard people talk about this before. My question to you is, if we are healthy, do you think we need um, these supplemental molecules to favor the uh, CYP1A1 and move estrogen down the 2-hydroxy pathway? So you mean like, should people that are estrogen dominant just take something like a DIM supplement? Is that your question? Uh, my question is, I guess I'm asking it from my perspective, which is if we are healthy, we, we shouldn't need DIM, right? Right. Uh, right. DIM, uh, these, uh, these, I believe DIM is an isothiocyanate, um, but I could be wrong technically speaking there, but it is something that's derived from broccoli um, yeah. or I3C, indole 3 indole 3 carbonyl. Um, the, I don't think we need those molecules. I think that in, if things are disordered, they might help move things back into the right direction. But I suspect, or my question to you is if we are in a healthy state, if we are insulin sensitive, will our body be able to, um, use CYP1A1 adequately, this phase one detoxification enzymatic group and, and move the estrogen down the two hydroxy pathway in a, in an adequate way without those supplements, if we are healthy. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, because I, I, I don't take DIM and right. I don't, um, I, I eat broccoli randomly, definitely not like in the amount that maybe would be suggested to help with that. And my 
2OH pathway is great. I make about 70 to 80% of my estrogen um, into 2OH. So it's not that we need cruciferous vegetables to have healthy estrogen metabolism is really the question I'm asking. Well, and what's funny is like, <laughs> let's, I'm going to come up with a hypothetical patient. So you have Sally in your clinic and she's a hundred pounds overweight and she's very insulin resistant. And then you tell her, she should eat more broccoli to reduce her risk of breast cancer, right? That's what, this is how it's like marketed on the internet. Like, That's how it happens in offices. Eat broccoli through. to reduce your risk of breast right. cancer. When basically <laughs> they're telling her to eat the broccoli to try to metabolize all her excessive amounts of estradiol <laughs> into 2OH when she could just do a ketogenic diet and lose the weight and she didn't, wouldn't need to eat all that broccoli. <laughs> right, it's much more complex. It's, it's, it's about the overproduction of estrogen rather than the fact that her pathways are getting shunted in the wrong directions. It's, and I, I, I feel, this is exactly what I'm talking about. The people are often told that DIM or I3C are a panacea or a pseudo panacea when in fact it doesn't actually correct the underlying problem. Why is your estrogen going down 4-OH and 16-OH pathways and not the 2-OH pathway? probably because of insulin resistance or other imbalances in your body. And those are the real problems that we need to work on correcting. Right, right. hundred percent. Supplements like that are used as a tool when you actually have abnormal testing and you have to look that woman in the face and say, listen, you're metabolizing a lot of this into 4-OH and 16-OH. And, you know, in that situation, you might say, you know, let's put you on DIM or this or that. And it's used as a tool, but just blanket, you know, across the board for everybody. I don't, I don't think that's the answer. <laughs> Neither do I. Okay. All right. Perfect. So methylation. So then after you go through methylation, you have to get rid of it, right? We said invite the estrogen to the party and get rid of it. So it basically has to be either excreted in the urine um, or in the feces. So it actually goes through our bile system as, and gets conjugated. And then it goes down into our gut where we encounter uh, beta-glucuronidase. And so glucuronidation, and if you have high beta-glucuronidase activity, um, you can reabsorb a lot of your estrogens through enterohepatic circulation, which can further make you estrogen dominant. <laughs> so your gut matters. So now we have to get the liver to work right. We have to be methylating well, and our gut has to work well so that we don't reabsorb all this estrogen. So, so what causes high beta glucuronidase? Because this comes up a lot. I've seen it on GI tests before, dysbiosis, anything else that you see causing high beta glucuronidase? Probably insulin so, resistance. Yeah, insulin resistance is one. Um, I was looking at some studies last night, actually um, looking at, um, actually, so in the, the opposite direction, um, um, I was looking at a study on vegan diets and fiber consumption, mm. and um, it can actually drive your estrogen incredibly low. Um, incredibly oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> there's a, there's a study that I've quoted before like called the bios. Yes. It increases the rate of anovulation. This is the biocycle study. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I talked about this one in the past that, that the amount of fiber in women's diets was correlated with the risk of anovulation. So for women that are not getting rid of the estrogen, fiber might be a good thing, but the question is why are you not getting rid of the estrogen in the long term or in healthy women? I would agree with you completely that if women are eating a high fiber diet, their estrogen could be going too low. Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely agree. So, and the only way to test for that, and you have to do stool testing to look at your uh, beta glucuronidase activity. There's no, you, you can't do it with Dutch testing or serum testing or anything like that. So if you have estrogen dominance, that's something to definitely look into. And I think, you know, with the microbiome, we don't, there's, you know, the astrobilome, the microbiome, like there's so many things about the gut that we just don't know yet. 
Um, but it's something that you have to consider if you're dealing with estrogen dominance, for sure. The estrobilome would be all of the organisms metabolizing estrogen in the gut? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay. So um, then I want to talk a little bit about if we can maybe segue into thyroid because estrogen has a big impact on the thyroid. I know that's something that I get asked a lot and that you get asked a lot. And we talked a little bit about it um, when we did our last um, YouTube video. But Do we need carbs to have a healthy thyroid, Jamie? Do we need carbs? That's what people ask that all the time. They send me stuff all the time. If you don't yeah. have carbs, you can't convert T4 to T3. And I think, well, I think it's more complicated than that. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about just the impact of estrogen on the thyroid um, and something that I see a lot. So thyroid disease is much more common in women. So like five times more likely in women than in men. And it is, is due to the effect of estrogen on the thyroid. Um, estrogen. So if you have estrogen dominance, it increases um, thyroid binding globulin, TBG, which is produced in the liver. And that basically binds up your free T4 and free T3. So just a quick little review we probably should do before we dive into this deep is that you make something called TRH, which is secreted from your brain that travels down uh, to the pituitary gland where you secrete TSH, which is thyroid stimulating hormone, made in the same place as the FSH and LH we talked about earlier. And the TSH goes down and stimulates your thyroid gland um, to produce mostly T4. So T4 goes out into the body and gets converted into T3 in the peripheral tissues. And it's actually the free T3 that is our active thyroid hormone. So if you are talking about testing your thyroid and figuring out if your thyroid is functioning properly, you need to be looking at all of the parts of the cycle, which include TSH, T4, T3, free T4, free T3, and reverse T3. And then I always make sure that patients have at least been screened with thyroid antibodies um, in case they are hypothyroid. So if we know we're dealing with something like Hashimoto's. Um, so the problem that estrogen plays, like I said, it increases thyroid binding globulin. And when remember, this could be people who, on, who are on birth control pills, <laughs> increases TBG and sex hormone binding globulin, <laughs> by the way. Um, but estrogen also inhibits the enzymes inside the thyroid, the proteolytic enzymes. And so it can actually um, inhibit release of T4 from the thyroid gland. So estrogen dominance causes lower thyroid function. The low thyroid function causes more excess estrogen. And it's just a vicious cycle. It's a vicious cycle. Um, estrogen also decreases the conversion um, through the deiodinase of T4 into T3. Um, so without good estrogen metabolism in your liver, uh, your thyroid is basically, um, further harmed. The other important thing, um, because I mentioned Hashimoto's, which is autoimmune thyroiditis, um, seen a lot more in women is that when we were talking about the estrogen metabolites in the liver, um, there is a study that showed the, um, two methoxyestradiol, um, can't be, um, that can't be excreted actually causes apoptosis of thyroid cells and releases increasing amounts of the TPO autoantibodies. So it's super important if you have thyroid issues that you're also looking at estrogen and vice versa, um, because one could be harming the other. And so that's what women um, need to know is you can't just say like, well, I need carbs for my thyroid, <laughs> because if you have some major estrogen issues going on, um, you may need less carbs to fix your estrogen um, and, vice, and vice versa. So that's and subsequently help your thyroid. Yeah. Right, right. So for instance, just um, for me, 
I was diagnosed with hypothyroidism after my first pregnancy, which after pregnancy is a common time to have exacerbations of thyroid issues because in pregnancy, you have boatloads of circulating estrogen that comes crashing down. Um, I mean, like the levels of estrogen and progesterone in pregnancy um, within days, like come crashing back down. And so that can be um, a common time if you've had all this estrogen suppressing your thyroid. Um, then all of a sudden, sometimes we'll see a transient hyperthyroidism that happens after pregnancy, and then the thyroid will burn out and it'll go back hypothyroid again. And so it's important if you're postpartum and you're listening that, um, that you're checking the thyroid often, like even sometimes every six to eight weeks to see what's happening with the thyroid function. Um, but just know that, that pregnancy is a common time. So I basically just went on levothyroxine. Um, it was very symptomatic unless my TSH was less than one, which is most doctors treat the TSH. I don't, I treat the free T3 levels mostly, but, um, since I went on a ketogenic diet, I'm off all my medications and my free T3 levels are actually normal. And my TSH, um, is actually around like two and I feel amazing. So let's talk about low carb and ketogenic and what it really does to the thyroid gland. So the first thing that people need to know is that calorie restriction reduces thyroid function. So if you are going on any sort of calorie restrictive nutrition diet, um, you will see a decrease in thyroid function. So think of it this way. Your thyroid gland is related to your fertility as a woman. And if your body senses that there is less nutrients and calories, nutrition available to it, it will try to conserve what it has. So it will reduce the metabolic rate in order to conserve. Um, so just a diet in general, whether it's cell reduced cleanse or the ketogenic diet, it can reduce your thyroid function. If, if it's calorie, if it's, cal if it's calorically insufficient. Yes. Yes. So, um, so then let's talk about ketogenic and, um, thyroid. So there have not been any great studies done looking at this specific issue, but there's been a lot of studies done where they have also followed the thyroid function of the participants. And um, I have a couple of the studies pulled up. So Foster did one back in 2003. It had 28 people in it. There was zero cases of hypothyroidism. Um, Yancey did one in 2004, 59 people in that study over six months, no cases of hypothyroidism. Um, I've got five other studies I can list you off, and none of the participants developed hypothyroidism, overt on, hypothyroidism. It would be on, hard to... Right. On yeah. eucaloric, these were eucaloric yes. ketogenic diets. Yes. So it's a, it's a study Correct. so they can control the amount of calories or they can say, hey, you need to get, make sure you meet your caloric needs. Correct. Right. Now, um, so what did they see with the patient's labs? So what happens when you have hypothyroidism, hypothyroidism is that you will have low free T3 or free T4 levels and an increase in your TSH, your thyroid stimulating hormone. So if the thyroid levels actually go down, the body is supposed to sense that and it is supposed to stimulate the thyroid to make more thyroid hormone. What we see in these situations, what I've seen clinically is that although we will sometimes see a reduction in the free T3 levels of people on a low-carb or ketogenic diet, we don't see a rise in the TSH or the thyroid stimulating hormone. So what's been proposed is that just like we see an increase in insulin sensitivity, just like we see an increase in leptin sensitivity, 
is we are seeing an increase in thyroid sensitivity. So at the level of the tissue. And uh, the reason I think this is true is because the patients are not symptomatic. Even my patients who have a free T3 that is on the lowest end of normal, um, their TSH is normal and they have no symptoms. No symptoms being cold, fatigue, weight gain. And this is a very important point that I've talked to Tommy about before. In all of the studies that have been done with ketogenic diets, people lose an equivalent amount of weight or more relative to low, to, to low fat diets. And if we were really inducing hypothyroidism with a ketogenic diet, the basal metabolic rate would go down and they would not lose weight. They would gain weight or this would not be the same, right? They're, so the fact that it, by all uh, evidence that we can see, it really appears that basal metabolic rates are not changing in a negative way. They are not going down on ketogenic diets. Some people would argue they're going up. I think that, again, this is one of the points of contention in the community, but they don't look like they're going down. How can you say that people are having hypothyroid with a low T3 or a borderline low T3 if there's no apparent decrease in basal metabolic rate? It brings up a very interesting question. Right, right. And the other thing that I always look at is reverse T3 because people will say, well, the diet's like stressful. So what right. happens in stress, illness, sickness, is that one of your body's protective mechanisms is to shunt basically free T3 into reverse T3. And reverse T3 competes for the same receptor. So it's there, it binds the receptor, but it doesn't do what free T3 does. And in these situations, I've never seen a patient that has high reverse T3. Um, so it's... <laughs> it doesn't seem to really fit. It, right. it, it confounds Western medicine, but I can't tell you how many times I've had clients say, my, my PCP says I need thyroid hormone now because my thyroid isn't working on this ketogenic diet. And I say, mm, I'm not sure I agree with that. Right. While, they're, while they're feeling really good, they say, I feel really good, but my PCP says. Yeah. <coughs> it's, um, you, don't, you, don't, you don't need carbs. Now, um, like how many carbs do you need? I think that depends on what your insulin sensitivity is. Um, but you don't need carbs to fix the thyroid. And let's just be clear. Are you aware of any evidence that we need carbohydrates to convert T4 to T3 in peripheral tissues? No. And, but there are a lot of other vitamins and cofactors like zinc and selenium are huge, um, in, in thyroid function, but those are not carbs. Those don't, those are not carbs. (laughs) Zinc is not a carb. (laughs) Zinc is not a carb. And I don't, I, I think that some people, will argue that you need insulin to do that conversion. And another point that I want to emphasize is that a low fasting insulin does not mean there's no insulin signaling. Protein. Ex- yeah, right. There is, there is a postprandial rise. Maybe we should actually talk about this for a moment. There is a postprandial rise in insulin when we eat protein, even on a ketogenic diet. One point, yes. that, one point that Lane has made that I want to disabuse yes. him of is that and, and um, Ben Beekman has talked about this in extensively, Lane will counter ketogenic claims by saying the amount of insulin released when you eat protein is the same as when you eat a carbohydrate. And that is not true, contextually dependent, right? That may be true on a mixed diet. If we are using glycolytic metabolism, if we are eating carbohydrates, if we are, if we are glycogen replete, if we are not in a low carbohydrate state, if we are not making ketones, it may be true. There are some studies which show that giving someone protein increases insulin to a similar degree as bread. But in a ketogenic state, on a low carbohydrate state, that is not true. And I've never seen Lane answer that. And so um, there is a postprandial rise in insulin 
even in a ketogenic state when we are eating protein, but it is, it is much lower than what we would expect. I'd have to pull the numbers out to quote them formally, but I was looking at this with my friend Nathan, and I think that we measure insulin in parts per million in the blood. And I want to say that the postprandial rise in insulin on a mixed carbohydrate diet was often giving carbohydrates was like over 100 or 200 and maybe 300. And, and the postprandial rise in insulin on ketogenic diets is like 30 to 40 with protein. So again, I'm just ballparking those numbers. I'd have to pull up the formal figures, but there's a real difference between um, the amount of postprandial insulin rise when you're ketogenic versus on a mixed carbohydrate diet. Is that something that you would agree yeah. with? Yeah, no, I know exactly what study you're talking about. And I commented on it when it was circulating around um, because <laughs> once again, it's like the headline, right? Eating beef causes the same insulin as bread, but you right. have to look at it also in what is the glu glucagon doing? Because that's what's going to determine what's happening with the glycemic variability, which is the point that I always try to circle back around to. Um, but you take uneducated, uneducated people and they're like, oh, well, crap, now I can't have my hamburger. It spikes my insulin. <laughs> and, the, and, and I think it's important for people to know that insulin response to foods is context dependent. And our overarching metabolism will, depend, will, will affect that positively or negatively. And I think that if someone is insulin resistant, insulin resistant, you're going to get a whole heck of a lot of insulin res response from protein you know, but if they're not insulin resistant, it's going to be different. And that's the problem with these studies. It's like, let's show me a ketogenic diet. Like let's actually look to somebody on a ketogenic diet, somebody that's insulin sensitive. We could take somebody even that's eating a carbohydrate based diet. That's insulin sensitive. Show me their postprandial insulin when they, eat their, when they eat protein. I don't think it's going to be the same as when they eat bread. Um, and I know it's not in the setting of a low carbohydrate set, you know, physiology. Right. Right. hundred percent. Um, I think it would be interesting if the CGM could track insulin levels, oh, and levels. And <laughs> I think it's going to happen in the near future. I was talking with Anthony Gustin about that. I think that's, that's the Holy grail. It might be a, a little bit esoteric for some people, but I would love to see postprandial insulin levels. Yeah. And the other thing I want to say that I thought of while you were talking about that is I want people to hear this message that we, we always take these things in the body, like cortisol, insulin, and we put these little villain capes on them. <laughs> They're yes. not, they're not bad players. Like cortisol is not bad. Insulin's not bad. Like estrogen does good and bad things too. Everything in the body needs to be like in the small little homeostasis window. It's not, it's not that it's bad. It's that too much or too little is not a good thing. And so people, people need to understand that. I think that's a great point that cortisol is not bad. Carbohydrates are not bad. Insulin is not bad. We make carbohydrates in our body. I make glucose, you know, it's not a bad thing. It's just there's nuance here, but it's hard to communicate that. One yeah. thing that you said earlier that I just want to highlight was all of the causes of insulin resistance and all of the causes of estrogen dominance, they were all kind of the same. And I thought that was so interesting. And just in case people are not aware of this, I really think that, and I'll be curious to get your take on this as well. Insulin resistance to me can be caused by multiple things. It can be caused by inflammation. Uh, we know that we can get insulin resistant when we get an infection. If we're really sick for some reason, like if we get the flu, we'll get insulin resistant. It can be caused by inflammation from a pathogen. It can be caused by inflammation from disordered things in the gut, I think, um, which is part of what I'm so interested in with plant toxins and potentially disrupting gut barriers. It can also be caused by overfeeding uh, mixed macronutrients. So we know we can make someone insulin resistant, which is probably what happened to you when you were overfeeding with carbohydrates mixed with fat. But the mechanism by which our body 
um, orchestrates insulin resistance with overfeeding is inflammation. The body signals from the mitochondria, these reactive oxygen species, to the cell to say become insulin resistant. So when we are calorically overfed, we become insulin resistant because of inflammation. And so this is, I just love how it's all kind of connected. I want to bring that up for people because I don't think that's talked about a lot, that, that inflammation is really the overarching uh, thing that ties it all together. And I think, as you said, inflammation can cause estrogen dominance and, and we, they're all kind of connected here, but ultimately it's about finding how to rebalance the body and getting all those pieces back into the Goldilocks amounts. Usually that starts with quelling the inflammation and obesity being overweight, that is an inflammatory state. Lose the weight. And how do you right. lose the weight? There are lots of ways to lose the weight, but once you lose the weight, you will get rid of that inflammation. There are other things that could cause inflammation too. Does that sound yeah. reasonable? It's funny because I'm, liter I'm literally sitting here looking at a list, my list of things for people that help from a dietary perspective of fixing estrogen dominance. And all of them are basically anti-inflammatory. What's so, on the list? Number one, reduce polyunsaturated fatty acids like vegetable and seed oils. Right. Okay. Highly inflammatory. Avoid alcohol. Right. <laughs> Avoid refined carbs like flours and sugar. Avoid mm -hmm. trans fatty acids, margarine, hydrogenated oils. Um, you'll love this one. Uh, avoid phytoestrogens, soy, flax, and oats. <laughs> yes. Uh, avoid coffee and tea. And can, can, we just, can we just pause there for a moment? Yeah. The phytoestrogens are numerous. Numerous. I did a whole part of my book on flavonoids. So all of the flavonoid molecules that are touted in plants have estrogenic activity. This includes resveratrol, quercetin, genistein, which is an isoflavone in soy, these flax uh, lignans. There are so many flavonoids that are estrogenic because they mimic the estrogen receptor. Sorry, go ahead. Right. And the only plant that could help, cruciferous veggies, but if you don't eat the carbs, then you don't need them. <laughs> you probably don't need them. And I think there's probably other bad things in there. I'm sure yeah. there are. Yeah. Yeah. And then intermittent fasting, which is another great tool to use to help reduce caloric intake and reduce inflammation. So reduce inflammation. Yeah. The whole yeah. list is like just circles back to like anti-inflammation. Anti-inflammation. I just think it's so interesting that when we put too many calories in our body, we become inflamed. And that's, that's what Lane is talking about. And it's right. He's right. And he's myopic. He's getting focused on one little piece of it and missing the whole broader context of nutrient quality and overall food quality. We, we know that we can't overeat calories that will create inflammation and caloric deficit will remove inflammation, but we have to do that in the best way for long-term health and performance. Um, and I think that we tend to overeat. The easiest way to become inflamed is by eating processed food because we have no satiety mechanism. And I think that the nuances there are fascinating. This is what I was talking about with Stan Efforting. The, um, the fact that for some people, it appears that when we overeat carbs and fat together, that may create insulin resistance. And I wonder if, um, and what I proposed to him was that if we just focus on one of those macronutrients at the exclusion of the other, it, it appears that we be, can become more insulin sensitive. And the, the controversial part of that statement that I made in that podcast was that I think that you can probably eat a lot of carbs if you don't eat a lot of fat. And I, I wonder for people if they could do that yeah. experiment. No, I completely agree with you. I always say pick which horse to ride. Yeah. But the only time that I have seen that bite somebody in the tail is um, I have had some patients who are um, like bodybuilder type eating very low fat diets. We're talking like less than 30 grams of fat per day and eating a lot of carbs. <laughs> 
and they get their body fat so low that they start to reduce their estrogen and testosterone levels. They become hypo, hypo, hypothalamic, hypogonadal. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen testosterones in men of like less than 200 in these situations. I've seen estrogen mm-hmm. levels of zero in women. So I tell people, you got to pick which horse to ride. And um, if I had to pick one, <laughs> I know which one I would pick. <laughs> and we're talking, what we're, we're talking here is either carbs or fat. Yeah. 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 And I think you're right. I think that it, that it, that people can be healthy eating a high carbohydrate diet, um, as long as they're low fat. And that the problem that most of us run into with these macronutrients is we do too much of both and then we get into issues. Um, well, let's just, I know I want to respect your time. Let's just talk a little bit about troubleshooting for people because every once in a while, and we kind of touched on this earlier, every once in a while, when people are doing ketogenic diets, they get changes in their, um, changes in their hormones. And let's talk about how to troubleshoot that. I think we've already kind of talked about it, but let's just make it very clear for people what to do in that situation or what could be going wrong. Yeah. So one that um, has gotten brought up in the carnivore community um, is I've had people tell me that they lost their period. And I have told people, listen, women, your period is like your vital sign. If your body does not ovulate, it is telling you that this is not a good time to achieve a pregnancy and that you're not doing something right. So we have to listen to these symptoms Um, these symptoms, just like those other vague symptoms, like fatigue and headaches and things like that are your body telling you that you're not doing something right. And lack of a menstrual cycle is one of those things. So when we look at the the medical word for this is called amenorrhea. So if I have a patient that comes into my clinic and they say, I haven't had a period in six months, usually it's, it's more than a couple months. Um, then we have to investigate why. The most common reason um, would be a patient with polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, But in this situation, uh, they said, well, I've been ketogenic and then I decided to convert to carnivore and now I've lost my period. So about 35% of the time, so one in three, this is probably what we call hypo-hypo. So hypothalamic hypogonadalism. So basically the ovary works, it is making hormones, but the brain and the ovary are not communicating like they're supposed to. So I went through that whole big spiel about how the brain's supposed to talk to the ovary and get it to make the, you know, stimulate the follicles. And so basically that communication is not happening. And so, um, in these situations, it could be because their body weight is low. So anybody that is less than 10% of their, uh, 10% below their ideal body weight will a lot of times become hypo hypo. So we have to look at what their body composition is okay, this patient had a normal body composition um, and had not lost a lot of weight. Um, Stress in general, if the body perceives something as stressful, sometimes it will shut down reproduction. So it could be that they went from eating a lot of carbs to all of a sudden going to a carnivore diet, which I always... I always like people to actually kind of like go into the carnivore-ish world first, but (laughs) because sometimes I think in women's bodies, it can be stressful. So it could just be the stress of a new lifestyle um, that has caused this. And sometimes just with time, the menstrual cycle will come back. Um, One thing that it could be is low leptin levels. So hypoleptinemia um, is a problem and it can be related to um, thyroid growth hormone or their adrenal glands. And so sometimes in these situations, I have them add back in small amounts of complex carbs to try to kind of boost leptin levels. And sometimes that will get the cycle to uh, return. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they can't be carnivore, but it just means that 
I mean, everybody's individualized, you know, what works for Paul, what works for me and what works for somebody else are all going to look, look a little bit different. But what you need to hear is that as your fat cells become smaller, smaller fat cells secrete less leptin and leptin is the hormone that basically tells us when we are full. Um, but leptin, um, is, is important. Remember there's no villains, no villains. <laughs> they, all serve, they all serve a purpose. But um, estrogen basically increases leptin and androgens decrease leptin. So for people that are really estrogen dominant, these, these big ladies, right, their leptin is like ramping up, their insulin's ramping up and their leptin and insulin resistance. Now think of like the complete opposite of that. Somebody that's gotten really lean, you brought up Cassie, I know she won't care, but somebody that gets really lean like that, they could have super low leptin levels as their estrogen levels get really low. Um, and leptin helps with LH pulsatility. So that's how leptin helps to basically turn back on um, the pulsatility in the pituitary gland. Um, so it sometimes can be of pituitary origin, like if they've had head trauma or they have some sort of like uh, mass in the pituitary gland, you know, prolactinoma or something like that. But in the face of all those things being normal, it's usually hypothalamic hypogonadal. Yeah. And I think um, the problem that most people run into is not enough calories. And on strict carnivore diets, they are very satiating. And I agree, there's a transition. When we remove all carbohydrates from our diet, um, which is often not the case on a ketogenic diet, oftentimes people have at least a small amount, you know, 30, 40, 50 carbohydrates per day on a on a ketogenic diet, but many, many carnivore diets will have zero effective carbohydrates. I mean, there'll be a small amount of carbohydrate and glycogen, though one could construct a, car, a carnivore diet with a pretty reasonable amount of carbs, especially if they tolerated dairy, um, lactose has, a, you know, is a decent milk sugar, if they were doing kefirs, or I think that for some people using honey works. And so there are ways to eliminate plants. If we believe that plants are triggering issues for us, there are ways to eliminate plants that don't quite as strictly remove carbohydrates. But I think for a lot of people, it ends up being a calorie thing more than a macronutrient thing, although there is some individuality, and I think we're still learning here. In the case of Cassie, um, who we're talking about, who's at Cassie Wild on Instagram, you guys should all go check her out. She's a radical woman um, and has shared her own story with her menstrual cycle uh, publicly so we can recapitulate it. But when she went to a carnivore diet, she lost her period and then um, added back in some... Uh, I think some fruits and kind of tubers. I think. What's that? Uh, yeah, I think she had like berries and tubers. Yeah, and then the and, and de-stressed, and then the cycle came back, and then she went carnivore again, and the cycle continued. So it, I don't know whether it was the stress or the the transition was too abrupt, but um, it, it, she, as far as I know now. Um, she is able to maintain a, a normal menstrual cycle on a carnivore diet when she wants to do that. So, and there certainly are people, uh, there are many women in the carnivore community who are fully carnivore and cycling normally. Uh, again, I think for most people, the, the pitfall is they don't get enough calories for both men and women. And I've seen this for men's hormones as well on a carnivore diet or any diet that when we make these shifts, what we've learned is that ketogenic diets or, you know, low carbohydrate diets are quite satiating. And if men cover you know, limit their calories as well, they will see a drop in testosterone. It's just that men don't ovulate. We don't have a menstrual cycle. So we don't have as much of a visual display that something is different. We may feel a little different, but I've seen in my clients when they do one meal a day, or if they're um, inadvertently limiting carbohydrates or inadvertently li limiting calories, excuse me, they can see a drop off in testosterone that returns when they just eat more. 
um, of the, of these foods. So that's, I think one of the, yeah, you brought up a good point too, because I take care of a lot of women of reproductive age and I actually don't recommend, um, a lot of fasting in these situations Mm. because you want to make sure that you're getting your, um, adequate protein intake. And I think sometimes that's extremely hard to do in one meal a day because of the satiating effect. And so if you're a woman listening, if you are attempting to get pregnant, you are pregnant or you're breastfeeding, I wouldn't recommend necessarily one meal a day. You should be eating two or even three times per day to make sure that you're getting adequate calories and adequate protein and nutrients and things like that. Super important for breastfeeding. That's, I think that there are many women that I've spoken to who are breastfeeding just fine on a carnivore diet or a low carbohydrate diet, as long as they're getting enough calories. Yes. So in that yeah. case, you know, you got to do what you got to do to get the calories. And um, I think that for a lot of people on a carnivore diet, that's tricky because they're not used to eating as much fat as they should be eating. Right. And if we're just eating steaks, we're getting lots of protein, but maybe not enough calories. So um, do you have a couple minutes to talk about pregnancy or do you have to run? Yeah, no, I have a few minutes, but I don't know if we can talk about it in a few minutes. <laughs> let's try. But we can, yeah, let's give like the five minute synopsis. So basically, yeah. <laughs> okay, so the, the elephant in the room, everybody always asks like, is low carb and ketogenic safe in pregnancy? It's like the question I get all the time. So when we look at the um, governing bodies that basically look at what are the macronutrient breakdowns that we should be eating in pregnancy, they recommend nothing less than 175 carbs in, um, per day in pregnancy. Uh, when you look at the nutrients that we need um, to grow a human baby, if you were eating 55 to 60% of your calories from carbohydrates, it would be mathematically impossible to get the amount of choline and fat soluble vitamins and things like that, that you need to grow a healthy baby. So then where is, where does the carb window fall? Everyone always wants to know, like, what is the lower threshold then if, if we're getting adequate nutrients, like how many carbs do we need? Um, when we look at, um, the studies that have been done on low carbon ketogenic and pregnancy, almost all of them have been done on mice and rats. And in these studies, they had these animals consuming less than 0.6% of their calories from carbs. So we're talking like a pretty significant level of ketosis, right? And of course, they saw some neurological changes that happened in the offspring. Um, and this is what is fear-mongering women from going low-carbon pregnancy because there was changes in the hypothalamus and some of the brain structures and things like that. So, um, but then if you look at the... Um, Institute of Medicine recommendations, they say right in there, in the face of adequate dietary protein and fat, there is no such thing as an essential carbohydrate. And how they came up with this number of 175 is basically they look at the organs in a woman's body that are obligatory glucose users. So basically our red blood cells, parts of the brain, small part of the kidney. And that number is typically like probably somewhere around 70. And then they look at two standard deviations and that ends up around 90 And then they look at the increased calorie requirements of pregnancy, so like an extra 300 calories per day, which probably adds like another 30, 35 carbs. And then they look at the carbs um, that the baby would be need need to use obligatory. And that's like another 30 carbs. And then they just round it up. So somehow they came up with this number of 175. (laughs) So the problem is, is that I take care of a lot of women who come into pregnancy extremely insulin resistant and pregnancy in it of itself is an insulin resistant state. So if we look at the hormonal adaptations that happen during pregnancy, 
it is a normal physiologic process to create insulin resistance in a woman's body to shunt as many nutrients to the baby, including glucose, as possible. So in the first part of pregnancy, <coughs> pregnancy is largely anabolic. So we see an increase in um, insulin production from the pancreas by about 30%. There is a lower threshold for insulin, uh, glucose-stimulated insulin production. Um, uh, but we do actually see a slight increase in insulin sensitivity in the first trimester, which is great because most of my women are puking or have food aversions. They feel horrible. So if ketosis was dangerous, the baby would surely die in the first trimester because I have some patients that like pretty much can't eat the whole first trimester. Exactly. But, right. Yeah. Um, but we see, um, fat cells start to hypertrophy. We see an increase in lipogenesis and lipid storage, and it's all through insulin. And then we see this glycogen accumulation in the, in the mom's liver. And that is basically setting the stage for what happens in the second half of pregnancy, which is largely a catabolic process. So in the second half of pregnancy, we see um, further decreases and reductions in insulin sensitivity. Leptin starts to rise to help maintain maternal appetite. Um, and, and we start to see both leptin and insulin resistance. Um, we start to see an increase in lipolysis and hepatic gluconeogenesis. Our free fatty acid concentration is two to four times um, the, the um, uh, normal rate, and we see baseline ketogenesis. So a mom's body in the second and the third trimester is making ketones, and actively. they are crossing, actively making ketones, and they are crossing the placenta. And not only is the mom making ketones, but the baby is making its own ketones because they've done studies looking at the umbilical vein of the baby and the maternal um, serum level of ketones and the baby's ketone levels are even higher. And so what's happening is this placenta, right? This is the organ of pregnancy. The placenta is team fetus and it is creating metabolic changes, a couple hormones, placental growth hormone, human chorionic somatometropin, okay? And these are basically creating this level of insulin resistance so that the baby gets all this glucose and it, um, it helps protect the baby after the baby is born. And so there was a large study that was done called the HAPO trial, um, which looked at this exact issue. It basically looked at women who don't necessarily qualify as gestational diabetes, but who have elevated levels of glucose in pregnancy and then looked at outcomes. Um, what we found in this study is that women who don't qualify as a gestational diabetic um, still have significantly increased um, adverse outcomes as their plasma glucose levels um, go up. And so what we're talking about is big fat babies, large for gestational age babies and babies with extremely high levels of C-peptide in their umbilical cord, which is, which is essentially insulin. Mm -hmm. And this is a problem. This, this makes it a huge problem for the baby and how they adapt after they're born, because in the first 12 hours, um, it's kind of interesting. I think um, when I was looking at some studies the other day, babies basically take like 12 hours to keto adapt <laughs> after they're born. And it's probably lactate that's providing a lot of the energy to their brain in the first 12 hours. Um, but then once they, once they keto adapt, they're, they're making tons of ketones and breastfed babies are making even more ketones than formula fed babies. But the real question to get back to what the original question was is what is the lower threshold, you know, that could be consumed in pregnancy and would be safe. And I think it's very individualized. 
Um, most of my patients usually fall somewhere between if they're very, you know, carb sensitive, they might be able to have about 150 carbs during the pregnancy. And then my very insulin resistant patients, I have some that are down towards 50. Um, I, my personal opinion, I don't know that, that zero carb is the right thing for pregnancy. I think uh, a small amount of carbs is probably a better idea just because remember, like we talked about, um, there's no villains in the body. We're just trying to be in this little homeostasis window. We don't want to be too far on this side or too far on this side. Um, but they have looked at ketone levels in pregnancy and urine. First of all, people need to hear this. Urine ketone levels do not correlate with blood ketone levels in pregnancy. Okay. Because your doctor's going to have you pee in a cup and then someone's going to freak out because you have large ketones and it has absolutely no correlation with your serum ketone levels. Um, but ketones provide about 30% of the energy to that baby's brain. Okay. Ketones are very normal and are probably a protective survival mechanism of mammals. Okay. This happens in all mammals, not just humans. Um, but basically when we look at serum ketone levels in women, they are, uh, typically like around one in somebody that's eating a standard diet and in the fetal cord blood, they're typically like around two when you look at the studies. Um, but you, to even change the acid base of the blood, like your ketone levels would have to consistently be like above five, um, or even higher. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, I mean to, to even say that like you can get to a level of ketogenesis in pregnancy that would be dangerous, that it would be hard. You, the woman would probably have to fast for, for quite a bit of time, but, um, <laughs> Ketones serve a purpose. Ketones um, increase fat utilization and they help blunt this exaggerated insulin response that happens in a woman. And so from my perspective as an OBGYN, <laughs> I want healthy moms and I want healthy babies and insulin resistance is a big deal. And pregnancy in and of itself is a state of insulin resistance. And women need to be eating to a carb threshold that reduces glycemic variability, Right protects their long-term health and the baby's long-term health. Because the reason that this really matters is not only does a mom need adequate calories and adequate nutrients, but what she eats in pregnancy has epigenetic influences on her baby. And women that have hyperglycemia and hyperinsulinemia in pregnancy, their babies are at an increased risk of obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. So um, this is extremely important. We cannot be you know, people say like, do no harm. Um, telling a woman to eat 55 to 60% of her calories from carbs is doing harm to that baby, in my opinion. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so, I mean, like nobody, like nobody wants to come out and say like what the lower number is. Cause we don't know. I mean, we just don't know, like the studies haven't been done, but, um, but I think on the opposite end of the spectrum, we are doing a lot of harm to a lot of babies by um, allowing oh. women to eat at, at this level of carb intake. Over, over carbohydrating them. Um, yeah, and I love that you bring up the fact that there are that women in pregnancy are in ketosis or they are making ketones almost all the time. Babies are making ketones all the time. And uh, Tommy Wood has actually published a paper showing that ketones are used in the fetal brain to myelinate the neurons. And this is what's so interesting. I talk about this in my book as well, that we know that the formation of ketones and the formation of cholesterol share a common pathway from acetyl-CoA. And in the brain, what's probably happening is that ketones are being made into cholesterol because you can take acetoacetate or beta-hydroxybutyrate, convert it to acetyl-CoA, then shunt that down back through HMG-CoA reductase and make cholesterol out of it. And that's been demonstrated that the ketones are used by fetuses, um, by fetal brains to do that, to make cholesterol and myelinate neurons, wrap the neurons in the lipid sheath, 
which makes healthy baby brains. So yeah. And when babies, I was reading a study actually last night, getting ready for our podcast, when babies suckle, it increases the uh, monocarboxylic uh, transporter in the brain because ah. it knows that those ketones are coming. <laughs> Interesting. It's so cool. It's so cool. So yeah, so that transporter is what we're using to get ketones into the brain and to utilize them to make the cholesterol. And as you said in the beginning of the podcast, one of the things that we do in keto adaptation is upregulate the transcription and translation of the gene for the monocarboxylic acid transporters so that we can use these ketones in the body. That's part of the keto adaptation process. And yeah, when we're upregulating it, the body is saying, I'm going to move those ketones around. I'm going to use those ketones. So it's, they're already there. And it's, it is an interesting question. You know, how many do we need? I mean, 50 grams of carbohydrates is not a lot. One could easily get that by eating some dairy or, you know, a small amount of car of, you know, fiber or, you know, complex carbohydrates per day. Yeah. 100%, awesome. hundred percent. Awesome. Well, we didn't really have time to talk about menopause. We'll do that next time because I think that's a fascinating topic and I would love to get into that with you and maybe talk about bioidentical hormone replacement, but where can people find more of your stuff? Are you writing a book? Is what, Are you writing a book yet? <laughs> yes, I'm starting. It's so slow, you guys. I have so I have my I have my hat and too many things right now. But um, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook, Doctor Fit and Fabulous. My website is drfitandfabulous.com. I'll be speaking at a couple um, conferences coming up: Keto Summit Omaha, Metabolic Health Summit. I'll be speaking at KetoCon. Um, I would love to meet all you reach out. I love talking to you guys. Thank you for, for listening and thank you for following and thank you for helping spread this super, super, super important message. We're so valuable to have you a part of the community doing it, Jamie. What is the most radical thing that you have done recently, my friend? Um, well, okay. So I haven't done it. Well, I guess this could be, I guess this could be a really good time to announce it. Do you, do you want me to announce super secret information on your of podcast? Of course I do. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm actually running for Mrs. Nebraska this year. Wow. Amazing. I'm terrified. I'm terrified. <laughs> but basically my platform is that, um, women should be strong. You can be smart and you can be strong and you can still be a freaking beauty queen. So I'm running for Mrs. Nebraska this year. It's going to happen in April and uh, we'll, we'll see where it goes. How do we, so can we support you? Like, how do we, how do people support you in that? Well, if you're local, you can come to the pageant. Okay. Amazing. <laughs> right here in Omaha. If I, uh, if I win, I go on to Mrs. America, which is in Las Vegas in August. And if I win that, I go on to Mrs. World. So I feel like I'm representing the entire keto carnivore-ish community. <laughs> I love it. Doing this. So yeah, yeah. And I have some other really big stuff happening that I can't announce, but um, just please know we're doing really big things over here. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for coming on. And I look forward to our future conversations. Thanks, Paul. All right, you radical people. Thank you for listening to that episode with Jamie Seaman. Thanks to Jamie for coming on. You can find her at Dr. Fit and Fabulous on Instagram. She has a website, www.drfitandfabulous. She's pretty fit and fabulous. As you heard in this podcast, she is going for Mrs. Nebraska, which I think would be amazing. She's really a good woman who knows her stuff and is a treasure in this community. So I really enjoyed talking with her and hope you all did as well. As I said at the beginning of this podcast, if you value this, please leave me a review on iTunes, whatever medium you choose to listen to podcasts on because it helps us grow the show. So leave me 
me a review. I appreciate that. Check out carnivoremd.com for my blog, previous podcast episodes, which are numerous at this point, um, previous blog posts. I will link the t-shirt there. Right now, you can sign up for the newsletter, which is where I dropped the t-shirt pre-sales. Um, the t-shirt says, Stay Radical. It's pretty pretty stoked about it. You'll see it coming on Instagram soon. I'm going to get some, and I'm going to be modeling it all the time. It's all I'm going to wear day and night. Stay Radical t-shirts. And on the back, it says, Meet, Play, Love. We thought we would do a little tongue-in-cheek, eat, pray, love thing, but just say, look, these are the three elements that we need to be healthy. You need to eat some meat, which includes organs, clearly, and fat. And you need to play, and we need to love. We need to be kind to other people. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. Um, what a good formula for life. So I think if we do those things, we will be healthy and happy and able to really do the work that we are destined to do in our lives throughout the world today. Part of which is supporting regenerative agriculture. Please support White Oak Pastures. Check out what they are doing. I want to see you all at White Oak Chella 2020. It's probably the thing I'm looking forward to the most because it was amazing and it's good people. Like I said, I would encourage you to check out their website, whiteoakpastures.com. There's an awesome video at the bottom of that website entitled 100,000 Beating Hearts with Will Harris talking about it. It's just so cool. It moves me deeply. Ancestral supplements are my people. They are in Texas. They are climbing ropes, jumping in rivers and doing cold plunges and doing other awesome stuff as they are helping us get grass-fed and grass-finished organ supplements that are freeze-dried from New Zealand. They are encapsulated in gelatin capsules and they help us with our Nose tail nourishment, Saladino MD is the code there. What is going on with me? I am working hard to bring you guys this book early next year. Early February is the goal. And I am also seeing clients privately. If you're interested in being a client of mine, you can email me through my website. I am continuing to try to put out the best content I can with these podcasts and uh, looking to expand my medical practice here in San Diego with some PAs that I will be working with here soon and just trying to stay radical, you guys, trying to surf, trying to stay balanced, trying to do the research and bring the best information that we can. So let me know what else you want to see. Send me an email, Dr. Paul at CarnivoreMD. Let me know who you'd like to have on the podcast, what kind of conversations you would like to see, and I will do it. I'm going to try and do more Facebook Lives and more YouTube Lives in the future to get in touch with you guys, but hopefully I saw some of you at the YouTube Live this past weekend for the Carnivore Code presale. Thank you. All right, you guys. I am out for today, but I am going to be hunting in January coming up in a few weeks. That'll be fun. And then I've got a conference at the Physicians for Ancestral Health Conference. You should check that out. I'm going to be there in Scottsdale in January. And then in March, I'm going to be at the Arnold hanging out in June. I'm going to be at KetoCon. So hopefully I will see you guys one of those places in the very near future. Love and appreciate you all. Stay radical, my people.